Welcome back to the Pilgrim Faith Podcast, where human wonder fuels the quest for Christian wisdom. I'm really happy to be joined today by two of my favorite people in the world, my good friend Ryan Hurd and my really good friend Alistair Roberts. Uh, putting really in front of uh, Alistair, Ryan, doesn't mean that you're not a really good friend, too. I didn't mean to hierarchicalize you there. But uh, we're here today to talk about a, a course that Davenant is just about to release that's come from our good brother Hurd here called God is an Introduction to Theology Proper. Uh, Davenant puts out these 20 course modules that you can buy and such. And largely what we want to do today is talk through the important, the content of and the importance of that course. And I'm just going to make a, a couple of preliminary comments because I really think this is a significant, this is a significant product in the theological community. Perhaps, uh, I think, in fact, far disproportionate perhaps to people's awareness of it. Um, just to give a little background here, Ryan and I have known each other, I think, for a little over five years now, and I've watched Ryan really, really do nothing, almost nothing, and I mean almost literally nothing, uh, uh, not quite, uh, 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 but the doctrine of God, really, really trying to get a handle on how we say God, on how we think of the divine names, and working through extremely fine-grained things, and again, over five years of extremely rigorous labor that's turned into class after class. And as I've been corresponding with him and been able to read some of the stuff he's writing, I've just been increasingly and very excited about his project and what he's bringing to the, to the Protestant and evangelical community, really just to the theological community and the public sphere in America. And this course that he's just released, which is 20 lectures, really does boil down five years of labor I, I, over five years, really, of labor, but I've watched real extreme labor go into a product that I think is just very excellent, uh, a product that I think uh, you're just going to want to have if you're really trying to understand the doctrine of God and doctrine of God disputes these days and what's some of the grammar that might help us think through the moray that we're in and all the controversies we're in. So I'm just the really excited that Ryan's here and Alistair, who also appreciates Ryan, is here to talk through some of this material and really get people excited about this forthcoming thing. I'm going to start out, though, uh, Ryan, just with asking a really basic question. Um, when I was in seminary, one of the uh, my systematics professor was a, a guy named Howard Griffith. Uh, he passed away a handful of years ago, sadly. Uh, but uh, he, there were just many moments in seminary that I remember that were very profound and in some cases very pastoral because Dr. Griffith had been a, uh, a pastor for 25, 30 years before he became a seminary professor. And so learning theology and thinking through the pastoral side of theology was always very much fused for him. And one of the things he said at one point that I found fascinating was, you know, when I was a pastor, if I were to look back and think through what would I have done differently uh, if I could go through my whole preaching career and that sort of thing is, uh, he said, I, I think I would have talked just about God more, God and himself, not that he wasn't always talking about covenant and Christ and all the pieces of uh, a rich theology, but I think I should have spent more time just saying who's God and really just talking about God <laughs> with the congregation. That really stuck with me. And so maybe I'm going to, convert that into a question. People coming to this product and perhaps seeing in some ways the uh, the, 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 the high uh, uh, level of entry in terms of like the, the work it's going to take out of you to kind of work through some of this material, maybe get a handle on some terms and some concepts that we're, we're only half familiar with that sort of thing, maybe gives the impression that 
um, this isn't practical. You know, this is, you know, uh, you know, a, a product to solve a bunch of theology nerd questions or something like that. But I know you and I know your project and I know that's really not that's really not all it is. And that behind it all and underneath it all and in it all really is some sense of the gravity uh, of the fact that we're talking about the living God here and that projects like this are actually important, really crucial for communicating who the living God is to real people and real congregations. And I just wonder if you could start there. What, what is it that you see that's at stake in a project like yours? What, how does, how does this um, uh, thing that you've produced and that we're recommending people spend some time really trying to work with and understand um, on the backside of that, what is it really doing to give people a sense of the living God and how they might communicate the livingness of God to, to their people? Yeah, that's a really haunting question for my own life in a lot of re respects, because that's kind of the question that's in my mind throughout the years of my work. Um, and because it's such a profound question, I don't know if I have any simple answers. Um, sometimes questions are like that. They don't admit of quick or easy responses. Um, you know, initially some of the technicality is, is just frankly, not going to be immediately practical. It's going to take a pretty incredible, uh, amount of hours and time to gain some momentum in doing scholastic theology. And there's not going to be a lot of touch, uh, upon real life, a lot of, immediate relevance, perhaps. But over time, your overall impression of God shifts radically. As you firm up at the level of these hyper-technical truths, and you populate your impression of God, your picture of God, your feelings, your bearing towards God, not just in your intellect, but in your in your will, in your affections, in, in your body. Um, as a person here in this life waiting to see God face to face, um, all of our images and impressions about God are so skewed uh, or so faint and so blurry that populating that picture with as many clear and determinate truths as possible over the long haul, um, despite the work it takes to do so, does shift radically your impression and feeling about God. So that would be that would be what I would gesture to as far as the practical import long term. Once you have that shift occur, uh, once you know true things about God at that kind of level and know the reasons of truth, what they mean, what they amount to, these sorts of things, your perspective is really changed. And that's when your presentation of God uh, to folks in everyday life, if you like, or your metaphors used of God, your um, rhetoric used of God, how you wield Holy Scripture, all of that takes on a sharply different purpose or final cause and therefore also result in people who... Uh, don't need to have that kind of technicality 
for various reasons is not their calling and that's entirely fine, but who nonetheless equal to you also need to have the right impression about God, have the right bearing of person towards God. And I have just found in my life, as I experience that shift and become conscious of how radically different my feeling, my personal feeling towards God has become than what it was before I did all that hyper-technical work. And then realizing as folks who go through that process, then make the general gestures that they get the preaching uh, down really clear, or they you know, get the illustrations down really well. These are often very, very different kinds of illustrations than they would be using before. Very different tone of preaching than they would be using before. And that's where people start to apprehend, oh, wow, there, there is a major difference here. But it takes a very, very long time to get there. From my perspective, uh, it's worth it for my own life, for my own personal journey before the Lord to go through that hyper-technical work. It's not worth it for everybody to do so. But for a lot of people, it is worth uh, going through the motions of learning so that they themselves can acquire those deeper insights and then present them with their own rhetorical skills, illustrative skills, these, these sorts of things uh, in ways that significantly change people's impressions. Um, so yeah, that's where kind of the rubber hits the road and the practical person payoff comes into view. Um, I do try to be honest with people up front. Otherwise they'll be disappointed when they come into scholastic theology class day one, you know, it's going to be day a hundred before you're like, oh, this is why we did all those 99 days worth of technical syllogism yeah. and logic and distinctions and on and on. When you get over the hump, and it's a very large hump, you look back and at least I can attest are very thankful for, for having gone through it. Uh, and it does significantly change folks over the long haul, but it takes some work. So you're following Mr. up on that. No, go ahead, Alistair. Following up on that question, um, it seems to me that the criterion of pra practicality or usefulness is a significant one for evangelical theology and for much modern theology, the idea the Trinity is our social program and things like that. Um, the sort of theology you represent does not seem to relate to the criterion of um, practicality in the same way. Yeah. Um, would you be able to elaborate on that? It's always a dreaded question, and it's al almost always the question I'm asked uh, whenever I'm interviewed. And of course, it's very kind and well-motivated, but yeah, what's the practical relevance? What's the what, what's this got to do with the everyday person? I respect the question. Uh, I, I have similar impulses. I, I come from that kind of background myself, and it's also a question that does lead at the forefront of my mind. But knowing God in and of itself is good. It doesn't have to have a utility beyond that for it to be good in itself. It does have utility beyond that. It specifies your will, your knowledge, your truths, specify your will, carve out your affections, uh, you know, regulate your actions, all these sorts of things. There is a theology unto life that's important to not just keep high and dry and intellect land. But with that said, and with those necessities marked, 
having knowledge in itself is good. And it is being good and being perfected and growing in uh, just light and, and then correspondently love, which are things that are intangible, things that are inside a person, but which time and time again throughout Christian history have been held up as what is really valuable and what is worth it all, uh, at least as an initial sin qua non, uh, if you like. So yeah, the, the kind of criterion of, of practicality is an important and well-motivated one, but it often causes us to overlook that the goods of intellect, the goods of knowledge of God here below, which are slight foretests, foretastes of the good of knowledge, which we're going to be having in glory, <laughs> right? So, you know, our goal is to get to heaven, not to have... Uh, the question's like, well, what is the utility of heaven? What is the utility of beatific vision? Well, it just is itself to be enjoyed. And in a correspondent and much more small way, of course, knowledge of God here below, as in as in uh, a veil, is just to be enjoyed. And then we can also talk about the necessary questions of utility and uh, things beyond that, but just enjoy it. Yeah, one one thing I'll I'll follow up with that because I'd like to get into to some of the content of the course it, is the title God is, uh, and that's an interesting way to put it. You know, God is an introduction to theology proper, and is of course is just this important word. <laughs> uh, uh, um, maybe for those who are a little uninitiated to its importance within the scholastic tradition, there's a there's a, a way of breaking down in some brief way. Uh, what is that term doing as sort of so centralized in, in saying the doctrine of God? In some ways, like God is, is saying, that's it, about as distilling down a formula, perhaps, as you can get to say everything. Uh, and so, and, and, and I think is informing, in a sense, the way you've organized the whole curriculum. That, that is statement is always present, in a sense, through all the lectures. Yeah. What's going on there? What, what, how does is, in a broad way, function for going through the doctrine of God? Yeah, um, scholasticism doesn't mark it very well. And I always worried about uh, these kinds of titles, uh, people hearing like God is and with some emphasis and just is, is, is or something. Like, I don't know. Yeah, the God um, who is there the, by Francis Schaefer. Yeah, kind of that sense of, of it is, which is a cool title, but that's not quite what you're doing, which is why. Yeah, this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's so scholastic theology apprehends truths and judgments and their reasons why. That's all we do. So when you are taking up predicates from among creatures, you can either affirm them of God and say is, or you can negate them of God and say is not. And the entire content of your knowledge um, is contained in those predicates and those is or is not compositions or divisions. And in a certain mode, the God part of our, you know, line of thought, God is wise, um, is always crossed out. There, there, there is no content behind that. It's all content that's after the predicate. So is and follows. First, the existence of God um, is being, and then all the things that we can say, take up from creatures and 
affirm them of God or the things we can take up from creatures and we have to say is not. So in a certain mode, like if scholasticism was able to be marked like that, I would, I would say God is, but I would cross out the word God and just focus on is and then everything else, because that represents all some total of knowledge that we can have of God in this life. We're fine down to its adequate categories. And what we're doing in theology, particularly scholastic theology, is making just true is and true is not uh, activities in our intellect attached to respective creaturely predicates. And I always tell people like creaturely predicates are not front loaded as to what they may or may not be able to be said as, whether is or is not. So when we take up body from creatures uh, as a predicate, as a conceptual content, as a, a thing, like body is a thing. Yes, it's this is a form in the mind, but it's a thing. We don't front load that and ask, well, uh, before we take it up, God is not this, and therefore you know, we can just throw it away. No, we take up this content and depending on which is true to either compose or divided of God, we reflect upon that content. And that's the equivalent of our knowledge of God that can be had from that creaturely particle from the created universe. And we just go through the entire created universe and pick it up and either put it into our God bucket or put it out of our God bucket. And that mental experience of dividing and composing predicates, creaturely predicates from God, uh, enables us to reflect upon the thing, which is God, which is making to be true all of these mental engagements in our mind. So now what's behind the title is uh, scholastic predication theory, I suppose, and divisions of divine names, but a reflection on theological method and the fact that all of our knowledge from God of God is taken up from with us and among creatures. And at the end of the day, the fact that theology is rather simple, take up a predicate from creatures either put it to God or take it away from him, reflect upon the truth and the reason why, and that's it. And crunching all that down in its meaning and significance and import and what it amounts to, like I can say those words a dozen times and like it doesn't track with you, but what it really amounts to and what its significance is, um, is the entirety of theology. Um, and so that's kind of the, the, the theory behind, behind the naming of the course, but who knows? We'll have to ask the 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 the, the Twitter paters whether they uh, have that impression as they as they see the title flash across. I I don't know. You've used the term um, scholastic theology on a few occasions already, and um, I'd be curious to hear you define the term and maybe talk a bit about the way that you see scholastic theology fitting within the larger Christian tradition. Um, is there? Is this a particular strand of the Christian tradition that is um, just one orthodox option, or is it something more than that? Um, what does it mean for scholastic theology to be practiced in a Catholic way with a small c? Um, and, for instance, as a Protestant doing scholastic theology, how does that tradition relate to us? Yeah, so I mean, scholastic theology is a is a general term that gestures primarily to high medieval theology, which was done in medieval schools. So scholastic from schools, um, it's often registered today as being 
kind of a technical equivalent to saying academic theology or technical theology or professional theology, something like that. There's a lot of truth to that as far as how it's generally used. But scholastic theology, more particularly, is um, concerned with making true judgments and acts of understanding of those truths, uh, period. Generally speaking, it has a, an Aristotelian background of philosophy as kind of its assumptions or priors. Um, as far as its relation to like orthodoxy, um, you know, folks like myself would would just say, well, it it is and comprises orthodoxy. Uh, and and would say that a bit tongue in cheek because we know what people are fishing for, but in the sense that it's true, scholasticism does lay claim to being true. And it's not one option among others as to the question of truth versus false. And at the end of the day, if you're if you're operating at that sort of level, something either is or is not. And if you say that it is, and it in fact is not, you're false. And if you say is not, and in fact it is, you're false, right? So there, there's only two options here, basic law of non-contradiction kind of thing. So, so at that kind of level, scholasticism just is orthodoxy insofar as it occupies the true part of whatever contradiction we're talking about. However, it's often contrasted with lots of different styles of doing theology, style being perhaps an unhelpful term because scholasticism is not merely a method, uh, although there is such a thing as scholastic method, but there are different ways of presenting truth and different ways of leading to truth and different ways of proclaiming truth and all of these sorts of things. Um, all of which have, well, not all of which, but a number of which can, can be good and can have virtues and can be systematized and have like, controlled borders that um uh you, you know you can you can behave with virtuously or viciously and all these sorts of things and in that sense no scholasticism is not identical with orthodoxy it's just a certain uh perch uh on orthodoxy um it's often contrasted with doing theology that's more dramatic or more metaphorical or something like that and in certain respect that's correct scholasticism prides itself in being uh, you know, bleaching all colors to just pure white and zero metaphors are allowed in scholastic theology. And in fact, this is something I often lament to my wife because I always feel like I'm just, I'm so up there in technical land. There's, there's no attachment to the ground. That's just the nature of the business. But that doesn't mean that proceeding via metaphors, even well nigh exclusively, like we find in Holy Scripture or like biblical theology, which is often... I don't want to minimize, of course, but is operating at that kind of level of imagination and these sorts of things. These are all valid uh, ways of getting at the truth, but not necessarily are identical to achieving the truth, right? There's a difference between having the truth and giving an illustration of the truth, and, and, and both are valuable in their own right. So scholasticism lays claim to achieving the true part of every contradiction where God is subject. So when he asks the question whether God is wise, it involves the contradiction God properly is and is not wise. The true part is the affirmative. And scholasticism 
holds that position. And it also gives the reason why of that position in the sense of uh, intellectual reasons leading to that judgment. So we do science, we, we demonstrate or prove or argue that the truth is in fact the affirmative, but we also explain that by giving some understanding of what that, what that means for God to be wise and so forth. And that's what we do. And that's it. With that said, as you can imagine, uh, scholasticism is very, very limited in its production for normal persons. Talking in terms of contradiction and judgment and understanding and reasons why and all those sorts of things just doesn't touch people's hearts, which is why where you bring in lots of other different styles, quote unquote, ways of doing theology, which are valid, good, uh, and dependent upon scholasticism, just as scholasticism in a different mode is dependent upon them to have purchase with actually embodied human persons and, you know, folks who are not uh, computer brain uh, and, and these sorts of issues. So, and this is where like scholasticism is often presented as intention with Holy Scripture, which is decidedly not scholastic and determinedly so. And uh, thank God that it is it is so graciously so on, on, on God's part. Um, these things are often put at odds from each other for those types of reasons why uh, that I've just outlined. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, one of the things you've uh, reiterated a lot over the years, and I think it's um, uh, I think it's fascinating and really crucial, is that there's a tendency, perhaps in our in the, in the theological world of today, to think very much in terms of methods and models, right? That there's sort of uh, and there and, and when you think of it that way, that you almost get the sense that we're framing it in this almost Kantian way, where God is really a noumena or something like, yeah. and we're and we're and we're as it were between trying different to phenomena. build our our relative Jacob's ladders, and, yeah. and and the best method is the one that gets highest in the sky. Yeah. Or like most that. most You're coherent into the dark, and you, um, uh, right, and 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 this is interesting, and and the background in Aristotle winds up becoming very important because the idea is you're starting at such a principial level in the grammar relative to reality. Yeah. Uh, we're taking for granted that reality actually is unveiled in these separations that we take yes. for granted and move from them yeah. uh, to build kind of brick by brick, very concretely. Um, uh, yeah, this this sort of thing. And I think, yeah, that's a real that's a fascinating way to think about it. And, and of course, that leaves open the dispute about exactly how how. Um, it's it's an intra-scholastic debate, as I would gather, about exactly how far we've gotten with those ladders. Scholastics debate themselves, in a sense, about how big the castle is, as it were, that we've built up from yes. the ground. Um, yes. Yeah, it's often the case, you know, I'm accused of uh, uh, using a synonymous scholastic and Thomist, and I accept that charge. I understand that critique. That's, that's, that's well-grounded. Yeah. It is the case. There are lots of debates among scholastics, but the, the more Thomist version of scholasticism, which I would represent, tends to be the center, the, the centrally agreed upon tenets of various intramural debates among scholastics. Um, not in kind of a weak common denominator sort of uh, mere scholasticism model, but which, which, which uh, rather has The virtue of being what is commonly and obviously and evidently held by all philosophical persons, uh, you know, up to around 1300 or so. There's Thomism is like the central core of light 
that Aristotle started, or here I become a Thomas apologist, and I apologize. Uh, that, uh, that's, that's, that's at least how, how I would represent it. Um, but it does, it does advert to the very difficult prior that a lot of people don't want to swallow. And I understand why, you know, Thomas theology is only so good as Thomas philosophy. And if Thomas is wrong about creatures, then Thomas is wrong about God. Right. That's just built into the system. And you either accept that or you reject that. But that, but it has the payoff of actually being solid. Uh, like on hypothesis that it's that it's indeed true. Well, then you could see how if you're right about creatures, and if the sum total of your God knowledge is taking up everything from creatures and either putting it or taking it away from God, putting it to him, taking it away from him, and then apprehending the reason why. Well, you can you can understand why this would be a very solid, locked in, um, this is the way it is, dogmatic, if you like, type of way of doing theology, that if it's right, has the sort of solidity and stability that I think people operate in terms of theology actually being, even though most of theology today is very anemic and weak and doesn't want to call foul as this, well, whether something is or is not the case. Um, scholasticism is very dogged in what it holds because, not because it's mean, although sometimes it is, but simply because it actually believes as like a prior that things are either connected or disconnected. And the intellectual acts that we're doing in our minds of connecting up disconnecting uh, predicates and subjects like have traction upon the created order and therefore ipso facto they have traction upon the created order they also have traction upon god himself yep. and that like that locked solid system just as solidly as you can know creatures around you just so solidly solidly you can know god so it has it has a lot of virtues but it it does have that massive hump which like are you willing to accept Aristotle? If not, okay, let's talk about it and, and maybe why you should, but um, it is a prior that's, that's necessary to, to, to either challenge or to adopt. On that particular question, you can maybe think of the um, common comebacks. What has Athens got to do with Jerusalem and the statements about um, Hebraic thought and Hellenistic thought all these sorts of things that come up. And behind many of the differences in theology proper, there seem to be differences in theological method, and in particular in the role of philosophy relative to the study of scripture. Um, can you speak to some of the key differences that you see in this area? And maybe particularly answering some of the critics of the sort of approach that you represent that would see within the scholastic theology that you espouse, a subordination of scripture to a, a philosophical system that is alien to scripture, and maybe also to a Hebraic way of thought. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of the question. In my opinion, this question, this set of questions, um, you can you can talk about how to like rhetorically put it in a way that's habitable to people and, and winsome and, and all of that. And those are important. But it 
it really needs to be very frank about what what is actually being claimed by scholasticism, which is going to make a lot of people uncomfortable. From my perspective, and I've always, I mean, this is just kind of my own nature, good and bad, but being really frank and clear about those things is at least helpful so we can then inquire about what's actually divergent and get down to these bottom method principal questions which are so fundamental and system shaping so from my perspective uh you know as you face up to holy scripture the letters of holy scripture are fundamentally unclear and if you consider them according to their surface appearance they're going to be misleading as to who god is that's not a very pleasant statement for a lot of people to swallow because it communicates holy scripture is deceptive or uh produces untruths or something like that no that's not what's intended rather it recognizes the fact that God fundamentally has accommodated himself in Holy Scripture. And for very various, very good reasons, which we need to talk about, has frequently and frankly said that he is something which he nowise is. And these sayings are only metaphors. Quite often, they're also metaphors which aren't even put for something that's being in God, but for something which is among creatures or even some creature, which is being used as a divine instrument. So just because you find a God is statement in the letters of Holy Scripture doesn't mean that God is that, nor even necessarily that we're talking about God. Scripture is a very complex document, and these letters, again, according to their surface, are unclear and occasion, not actively caused, but occasion when we read them according to our senses and various other things, occasion misunderstanding about God. Scott has taken up these metaphors. He's done so so we could have certainty. He's done so so that we can uh, start from home where we exist as creatures in, 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 in material order and gain some knowledge of divine and supernatural realities. But because he's done that and he uses Holy Scripture as an instrument to lead us into truth, um, although there are going to be a number of cases where we follow along the lines and we achieve the truth that is intended by the letters, we achieve the sense in the letters. Nonetheless, we're often going to waylay ourselves, deceive ourselves, and take to be proper what is only metaphorical. So the vast amount of Holy Scripture, at least from my perspective and the perspective of the scholastics, is particularly in the case of Holy, Holy uh, the, the Old Testament Scriptures, is somewhat equivalent to saying the sun is the color black. These are things that are true, of course, but they are purely metaphorical and put for something else. And we need to talk about, one, what they're put for. Two, why on earth would such an incongruous metaphor be used, uh, calling the sun, you know, the, the sun in the sky, the color black, like that's nuts. And anybody on their face would, if you say that on, out in public, they'd look at you really, really weird. 
So we need to ask why on earth would these metaphors be used? Why would the ancient sages speak this way on hypothesis they did? But if you take those kinds of hypotheses into account, which scholasticism and the fathers do hold to be even self-evidently the case, it's obvious that Holy Scripture is like this. If you do, then it becomes necessary that you have principled ways both to achieve the actual intention of metaphorical statements and to achieve and determine what interpretations are obviously and evidently false. A case in point, the statement in Holy Scripture that God has a hand is an easy one for most people to interpret because most people are normal. <laughs> God has a hand means God is strong. No worries. We don't have to mess with that. However, if we had to mess with that, and if we really were easily waylaid by the surface appearance of the letters, then we would have to go through all the rigmarole of proving, first of all, what it doesn't mean. Namely, that God literally or properly, properly is a better word here, properly has a hand, but rather that hand was put or supports because of an analogy of proportionality and uh, the prophet said hand rather than supports because he was speaking to people who work with their hands and who would therefore be led into this deeper, more difficult to apprehend truth from starting near and close to home and these sorts of things. Okay. Well, we're doing that in scholasticism just on a universal scale and on a scale that operates at the level of science and demonstration so that you can know with certainty what is false and therefore have negative principles of interpreting the letters of Holy Scripture. And I underwrite the negative part is where a lot of theology, a lot of the philosophical uh, priors as we come onto Holy Scripture, scholastic theology, is adverting us very, very clearly to what is false. Not adverting us to what is intended by the metaphor, but just saying, hey, if you happen to think that when it said God has a hand, that God has a hand, like that's wrong because that's false. That's a false judgment to make. And of course, as you know, Holy Scripture always return true, returns true judgments. And therefore, it can't mean God properly speaking, has a hand. Here's what it possibly could mean. God supports, and here's why. We're doing that at the universal level in scholasticism in ways that are principially motivated, methodologically universalizable, and also open to question. When, when we offer possible interpretations of metaphor, like there are lots of different kinds of metaphor, and you have to talk about the the fittingness of the metaphor and why this interpretation of the metaphor is more fitting than another and therefore more likely as an interpretation, all that. Um, but all of that follows from those initial priors, which we have to fight about and, and decide which, which side we're going to fall down on. Has God accommodated himself? Yes or no. And is that accommodation, this is very important because this is a lack of clarity that a lot of people suffer with today. Is that accommodation merely like in quantifiable terms or is it qualitatively other terms so a very important difference as a scholastic person such as myself says metaphor 
from how most people think of as metaphor today. Metaphor has no like root, um, root that's preserved. You just scoop away kind of the topsoil of the metaphorical saying and underneath was the gold that you really wanted. No, metaphor is one thing put for something entirely other. There's no overlap where you throw away the one so that you can achieve the other. That's what metaphor means also for the fathers and scholastics, which is not what most people mean by metaphor today. And when we talk about God accommodating and using metaphor, that's what we're talking about. God has taken things that are no wise proper to himself in any degree, even things that are very far from himself. He said he, he is those things so that we achieve other truths that would be more difficult for us to advert to. But nonetheless, we need to safeguard ourselves that we don't backfeed the metaphor and think that God indeed is these things. So there's a lot of gestures uh, that have just, you know, given here a lot more could be said uh, and it's a very technical issue, but it involves some, some, uh, some heavy priors that are important to get clear. When I've tried to explain this to people, I've often used the illustration of the way that in daily life, we'll talk about the movements of the heavens and the sun in a way that is very much focused upon the earth and from our rooted terrestrial perspective. Mm -hmm. And yet we know that um, we've had the Copernican revolution. We've done all the work in astrology. We've done the work in the science of light. We know these things aren't real in aren't true in the fullest sense. Mm -hmm. um, these are things that are truthful ways of speaking as far as the effects of the sun um, relate mm -hmm. to us, where we stand relative to it. And there are ways that we can, it enables us to live relative to these realities in the heavens. But we also know that that form of discourse has a limit to it that is clearly set by these scientific things that are demonstrable, that have been worked out through these first principles, mathematics, physics, through um, scientific investigation and experimentation. All of these things have established for us that the ways that we have of speaking of the, uh, of the heavens from the terrestrial perspective is technically wrong, but also it's right in other respects. Mm -hmm. um, and so when we're talking about scripture, we recognize that God does not have a hand as we have a hand. And yet we know that that's meaningful in the same way it's, it's meaningful to talk about the sun rising in the morning. But mm -hmm. we know how it's meaningful and we right. know how it would be dangerous if we were to press that into a strong truth claim um, mm -hmm. that would give God a body in the way that we have a body. Yeah. Right. And one of the things I think you see in the history of redemption, this is, is really fascinating to me, is, and I suppose I'm putting together two threads. Um, we're talking about Athens and Jerusalem, and we're talking in some sense about the final the final cause of these sorts of accommodations in scripture, and then the mm -hmm. and then this distinctive grammar that the early church especially is going to pick up on to to do its theology. Mm -hmm. And there's some um uh there there's some lack of fittedness in some ways to these two different ends and whatnot. And yet I think it's useful to say um 
there are points in which those things come in contact with one another, which is to say that statements in scripture, which it seems like you find in the fathers, right? Statements in scripture will wind up being those catalyzing moments where I, I leap from here and then move through this, this, uh, again, I don't even want to call it a method in, in our context, but nevertheless move through these mental maneuverings mm -hmm. that perhaps I've picked up from the world of creatures. And nevertheless, what I'm doing is I'm holding on to scripture and you see scripture itself in some cases uh, uh, get closer to talking this way. And, and it's kind of interesting when you read the early church fathers, the apostolic fathers, that grammar is, uh, if I could put it this way, the, the comparison of New Testament language to Old Testament language, or even of some later Old Testament language to even more ancient language, and then New Testament language to the apostolic fathers, and then the apostolic fathers to the third century. If you were to look at all of the God is statements across that spectrum of time, what you see is this movement that in one sense is a natural human movement, a mm -hmm. community's movement of understanding toward increasing formalization yeah. uh, and how we can say God. And, and, and in a sense, all the church is inheriting in one sense, one could say what the church is inheriting is the project of a kind of formalization, yeah. what we can say about God. Uh, and and uh, again, a conversation that's already in part going on in the mm -hmm. New Testament, even though that's not the, that document's main purpose. And I guess that's one way of um, uh, of getting to the content of the course itself. I think, you know, this is largely what we're doing is uh, divine attributes, or that's maybe not the right term, but divine descriptions, what is true about God in this tradition of divine naming. Uh, yeah. And I, I think that's fascinating because uh, I've just been reading through the patriarchal narratives recently, and you get this fascinating sense when you read Genesis that on the one hand, you've got this significant name, Yahweh, that, you know, and whatever, and Adonai, these sorts of things. But um, these are ancient stories, even the, the the Hebrew in them and such is very old. These are really old stories. And you you have this narrative of these people walking around and God shows up in these weird apparitions and such. Uh, but then what's going on is he's getting named the entire time. Mm -hmm. you, it's almost like you see the beginnings of theology and saying he's the God who sees, mm -hmm. or he's El Shaddai, he's the God of the mountain. He's the, And you're taking divine acts and we're starting to just say this is one thing about him, right? And then really all theology is, is the tradition of doing that piled together and then boiled down yeah. in, in a sense. And so, yeah, this is, this is what your course then is. And so I, I'd love to hear you kind of say like what on the one hand, almost, we're not doing something so much different than Hagar. We're throwing names at God. We're seeing what sticks in the formal order, in this in this yeah. formal uh, uh, order. Um, and, and that leaves us with some elegant, in a way, some elegant divisions within divine names. And I wonder, I think for, for those who are interested in purchasing this, it would be helpful to kind of hear a you know, the hundred thousand foot overview of what, how are we, how are we classifying in the tradition when all the work is done? What are the big boxes we walk away with when we think of divine names? Yeah. yeah so there, there is a fundamental division between apophatic versus cataphatic theology or negative versus positive theology, which is um, creaturely predicates plus either an affirmation that's cataphatic theology or creaturely predicate plus a true negation. That's uh, apophatic theology. Um, it's particularly relevant in the sphere of positive theology to make divisions on kinds of affirmations, which is, I think, even what you were adverting 
to their Joe. Um, as we see throughout the history of theology, there's this process of formalization, as you, as you say. Uh, the scholastics would talk about it as the reduction of metaphor to proper locution. And so, uh, you know, we used to say that God is a rock, uh, but now we say God is similar to a rock. So one is a metaphor and one is proper locution. And the scholastics, because they're very ornery and they want to uh, bleach all the color out of the system, they no longer say ever God is a rock. That's very bad to do. They say God is similar to a rock. Why? Because that was the that was the the true intention of the person who said God was a rock in the first place was to make a comparison between a rock and God as to the fact that each supports something. So that's what we do in scholasticism. Similarly, we we bleed out all of the metaphors and we make we make um, proper locutions. We interpret the metaphors is another way of putting it. And scholasticism, in that sense, is even the the universal interpretation of patristic and scriptural metaphors. There are zero metaphors in scholasticism, and that's by design. It's so that we can turn around and then use the metaphors, wield the metaphors in a way that is true, and also apprehend the 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 meaning of the metaphorical statements, particularly of Holy Scripture, because these are these are special ones, right? These are the ones that God Himself has given. So scholasticism by design uh, bleeds out all metaphors and refuses to have any metaphorical locution at all. But in the process of doing that, we realize that there are a large diversity of kinds of metaphor and kinds of locution that have different kinds of sayings. I often contrast here between saying God is love versus God is a tree. Both of these things are true. These are true judgments that can be made, but they amount to very different things. One is proper locution. God is love, period, which means our creaturely love is really similar to something in God such that a normal person speak. We can just talk about God's real love being a thing that God has, a thing in God. God really and actually has love. Full stop. But God is a tree, although it's true to judge, nonetheless is a metaphor for, for example, the fact that just as a tree uh, communicates its sap to its leaves, likewise God communicates being to creatures. Something like that. So, um, also true to say, but its meaning is very different. And it doesn't mean that God is somehow sprouting, you know, treeness up there in his person or being, it just is a metaphorical occasion. Okay, everyone knows that. But the scholasticism that especially Thomas occupies tries to determine various kinds of metaphor and even various kinds of proper locution and devises ways to slot, for lack of better words, all the different predicates that we can say of God into their actual categories so that we can compare and contrast their weights and measures and recognize that certain creatures are more like God and others are less like him. And so that our overall impression of God as a whole taken up from the universe of creatures is one, true, but also really reflects or has traction upon who God is. So God is good, God is wise, God is love, God knows. These are statements or judgments that are proper and formal and identify real 
parts or real things in God that we can talk about God's real knowledge, God's real wisdom, and so on. That list is actually very short. And the vast amount of other things that we say about God tries to advert us to those things and make sure they're real and alive for us. So God's power or strength is something real that God has. But simply talking about God's active potency and the fact that God's active potency is real in relation to creaturely effects and on and on, all the different little judgments we can make, it doesn't have traction on people. And so we portray God as having a hand or having a strong arm, which are saying the same thing, but are depicting it in ways that strike us as more evident, uh, more certain, and more real or more human. And that's what we're doing in theology. We're just kind of doing the reverse of devising metaphorical ways of talking about proper locution in a way that feels powerful to people. We're trying to re reverse that, to interpret all of the metaphors throughout Holy Scripture, particularly in Old Testament. The vast majority of Old Testament is purely metaphorical. Well, how do we determine, one, what these metaphors mean, different kinds of metaphors, these sorts of things? We got to do a lot of work. And so the course, really the central portion of it, tries to give six different ways, six different affirmative kinds of judgments that we make which the scholastics devise, reflects reality, reflects the usage of these kinds of different metaphors or different proper locutions in Holy Scripture as fundamental categories for interpretive keys, if you like, such that when you come up against this sort of thing, well, then this is the kind of thing it amounts to. And this is what we do with it. These are the kinds of negations that are going to have to be in, involved if we want to Make sure people don't go and be weird and get into error and all these sorts of things. But that allows us to uh, interpret and um, really, really powerfully wield, especially the text of Holy Scripture, in a way that is both true but also meaningful to people. And that's really what the centerpiece of this course tries to tries to do. Six different modes of affirmations, as I call them. Um, everything from God is love to God is a tree. And a number of ones underneath God is a tree. We'll see. Yeah. <laughs> those those statements you made just at the end there about the way that it enables us to wield the text of Scripture in a way that's powerful and effective um, gets to one of the concerns, I think, that many people have about um, the sort of scholastic theology that you represent, which at certain points, the things that um, you have said here to someone who doesn't know that you hold that position as you've stated it just a few moments ago, they might think that scholastic theology sees scripture more as an inconvenience that God has saddled us with, that scholastic theology exists to explain it away all the problems that it has given us. And so you have this tangled mess of metaphors that then needs to be converted into a more proper form of theological speech and um, maybe preserved away from the um, clumsy hands of the uninitiated so that they might not have its improper sense. Yeah. How can um, a, how can a scholastic theologian account for the form that God has revealed himself in within scripture and receive scripture very much as a gift, not a problem? Yeah. Um, 
I think that on the best and most charitable of reads of those who are working on scholasticism and tend to give off the air that Holy Scripture is an inconvenience and, you know, is good for maybe those little farmers over there, but the, the truly enlightened ones, the best and charitable interpretation of that is uh, theology is very hard. Interpreting Holy Scripture takes a lot of work. And sometimes you're in a bad mood because of how much intellectual work it takes to decode uh, one metaphor of Holy Scripture. And it's like, ah, again today. So this kind of, yes, it is inconvenient because it, it takes a lot of work. So I think that that's the best and most charitable interpretation of, of, of an often real dynamic. However, part of that dynamic is, at least in my own account, so like I, 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 I can recognize some of those tendencies in myself and, um, you know, weaknesses and failures. Uh, you know, when you work, when you work hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours trying to make one judgment uh, from the letter of Holy Scripture, sometimes you get a little bored. So I can, I can see that how that tracks at some points, <laughs> sadly. Um the Bible bothers everyone, Ryan. That's the Bible, bo the Bible bothers everyone. It's always a headache. Everyone's tired. <laughs> it's true. But the other thing that needs to be said is is sometimes scholastics really, really harp on what's not the case because of truly errant readings of Holy Scripture that are extremely devastating and damaging, and which are extremely easy to achieve or conclude from the letters of Holy Scripture. And so we have to wave really, really clear flags or make a lot of noise and jump up and down and say, this is false. And sometimes in our zeal, I'll just speak for myself, sometimes in my zeal of waving those flags and saying this is false, the impression is, well, Holy Scripture means nothing then. Because you're all about totally negating some predicate from God and whiting out the text of Holy Scripture. These are metaphors that, that I'll use in, in my classes and online and these various things in effort to deal with extreme problems and errors in theology that are destroying people's souls. At least on hypothesis that I'm right, hopefully people can see like, okay, I understand now why he's being so aggressive. The issue is, as you say, it can often really be communicating or being received as, well, the metaphor meant nothing and was just like what the farmer Joe was hanging on to until he climbed up the rest of the mountain and found there was nothing at all. Mm. That's where the difference between negative principles of interpretation and positive principles of interpretation and what the metaphor actually means comes into play. So again, using the basic, basic example, so people see God has a hand. Imagine a scenario where a vast amount of people somehow thought that God really had a hand or kind of sort of had a hand or something like a hand or some, something along those lines. Well, then we would have to make a big deal about God has zero handness. There's no handness in God on and on. We have to make this big hullabaloo. And then maybe we 
we we dull down the fact that God has a hand meant God is strong. People miss that positive thing that it meant, and it becomes hidden by all this massive negation hullabaloo that we're doing. That's a real dynamic, and that's that's a real issue. Um, and I can only say that, like, take that example and globalize it to much more serious examples that are endemic in theology, such as the wrath of God, God's anger, uh, a really frequent and frank saying in the text of Holy Scripture that the vast majority of people now for several hundred years have thought God somehow has some part of that predicate anger. So everyone knows he doesn't have everything of anger. His anger is not like ours and we make these types of things all good, all correct, but they still want to keep some root of that. Well, what do you have from that kind of mistake or virtual error in the system is the angry God syndrome. You've got God is the, the eternal frown syndrome. And you start to globalize these types of errors and all of a sudden the impression and the portrayal of God that you get in people's minds and hearts and spiritual lives and their prayers is fundamentally a God who, yes, has love, but his anger and frustration at us is just as real a dynamic that God has with us. And but for Christ, these things would be warring within God's own self. And in fact, but for Christ, we were underneath the wrath of God. God is frowning at people until they come to Christ. This is a massive trope and impression that a lot of people have. In that kind of scenario, you have to stand back and say, no, wrath of God was a metaphor. And you have to make total negations and zero out the predicate line and all these sorts of things. But sometimes people don't hear the end of the story or we don't get to the end of the story where we say wrath of God means God really punishes or God really is just. Those are the proper or formal things that are true of God, which anger was a metaphor for. And those are the things that are real and true and solid and all these other things that people want them to be. And oftentimes folks are nervous about when you start making these total negations of like, oh my goodness, then the reliability and the objectivity of Holy Scripture and the satisfaction of Christ and all of this is being undercut because we're zeroing out the predicate line and whitewashing the text. All, yes, I understand those issues. But and some of the negations we, are made oh, just in the experience of growing up in yeah. relationship to our, the parental discipline that we experience, yes. where we move from a very initial understanding, maybe um, of parents being just simply angry at us. Now, of course, yeah. as human beings, they do have anger. And yes. that's an aspect that um, sometimes comes out. But for the mm -hmm. most part, they're an action of love towards us, directing us, etc. And we learn those negations as we grow up and right. interpret what we've experienced in the past differently in a far more appropriate manner. Exactly. And it, it's it's more important, especially to have those kinds of negations running in the minds of folks who are teaching, folks who are writing theology, doing theology, preaching, something like that. Um Often I find in folks who take my classes, they go through all the negations, for example, with the wrath of God, which is the stock example in the tradition for good reason, which is also why I use it as a stock example. They go through all the negations and they come out of the class and they're like, okay, 
Um, the tone of my preaching has changed, but the things that I'm saying are basically the same. And it's just, you know, it's, it's, it's uh, kind of exactly what you're saying, Alistair, where our, our perception of what our parents really had in their minds and hearts when they were spanking us has shifted. And the, the little infelicities and misinterpretations have gone away. And then we're like, okay, that spanking was very real. <laughs> and, and, and it was also most of the time, very just, uh, we'll say all these things are still there and in the picture and important, like my butt still hurts. Yes. Okay. But now I know what was the cause of that all along. And I don't have the, the, the God is an angry father problem that so many of us have for a large number of reasons um, in our lives and where theology insofar as it can help correct that by adjusting truths up there in the intellect uh, is really, really important for theology, particularly professionally to do. Hmm. Well, I'll just, I'll just add one more thing as we're, we're kind of bringing it in for a close here. Um, one of the, when I, when I mentioned the title of the course, God is one of the things I was um wondering is whether there's also there's also some focus in, in using that term is uh to 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 capture you know this kind of perfection of perfections element right that that be that, that to be to have to be is kind of that perfection yeah. that pre-contains in some way that could be said in a bunch of different ways all perfections such yeah. that to say god is in a sense is to say it just to give somebody is is to give everything whereas everything yeah. is a limited motive is um and this really relates to this issue of positive and negative names. You, you've been on the podcast before, and I think you've said some really helpful things about how those positive and negative names move together such that we're trying to throw something, in a sense, all the way up into God. And the negative names are kind of unhooking mm -hmm. the structures of limitation, the limiting modes, in a sense. And mm -hmm. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read a quote here just because I think it's clear and helpful. From This is from Lewis and Miracles. Uh, and I, I'm, I'm just curious if this this gets at something, and I'll, I'll, I'll make it my last comment, and then Alistair, if you have anything, uh, uh, go ahead. But uh, uh, Lewis writes, great prophets and saints have an intuition of God, which is positive and concrete in the highest degree, because just touching the fringes of his being, they have seen that he is plenitude of life and energy and joy, and therefore, and for no other reason, He's talking in context about why do the mystics use these negation terms of God? He's not this, he's not that. No. Because they have that positive thing, for no other reasons, they have to pronounce that he transcends those limitations, which we call personality, passion, change, materiality, and the like. Yeah. The positive quality in him, which repels these limitations, is their only ground for all the negatives. Yeah. But when we come limping after and try to reconstruct an intellectual or enlightened religion, we take over these negatives, in, infinite, immaterial, impassable, immutable, and use them unchecked by any positive sense of what God is, that positive intuition. At each step, we have to strip off from our idea of God some human attribute. But the only real reason for stripping off the human attribute is to make room for putting in some positive divine attribute. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that that's right. Kind of what these things are going, how these pieces are moving together. Yeah. So, I mean, I have a whole lecture whose theme quote is that in, in this lecture series is 
the negations of all creaturely realities befits God because he exceeds. That's Thomas. So the same intuition that uh, Lewis is articulating there. You know, negations are not whittling down God, but cutting off the straps that are holding him down uh, in our minds and in our hearts. Um. So yes, it's true. And it's also true that negations, even some more radical negations, like God is not wise or God is not, period, which are difficult and challenging and controversial. And it's because they're often misread and misunderstood. I talk about these the end, more at the end of the course. Um, no matter the negations, none of the positivity of positive theology is ever being erased. Even when it appears to you like God is why because Dionysius teaches us, right? Threefold mode of exposition, all positive names of God. God is wise. God is not wise. And he's not not wise because of defect, but because of excess. Like that's the triplet that we yep. go through every single time. Um, people think that God is wise and God is not wise are putting wisdom into God and then pulling wisdom out of God. No, that's none of the positivity of our positive names is ever struck from God, ever. No matter though that our negations seem to target. Um, you have to be extremely precise with your negations. God is not wise as targeting the created mode of having wisdom. Wisdom is put into God irrevocably, and we don't ever take it out of God, no matter the negations we make surrounding, even when it sounds like we're doing so. Okay, these are very, very... means is the content of the simple perfections god is good wise etc god is love things like this um however it does advert us to the fact that that positivity that we're saying of god is essentially just registering that created love is really similar to something in in god so it's not God's love that's falling in our predicate line when we say God is love. Rather, it's created love, which is really similar to something in God, and therefore super plenitudinously like sucked up in the mega love of God, if you like. So that positivity is and remains and is never struck out, but it's also not the very positive, the, the the actual reality, the actual positive reality that God is, is not identically that positive content of the predicate line that we're affirming. Rather, the, the predicate that's affirmed is similar, is similar to something right. in God. Which and, is just to say that God is incomprehensible. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's very little. Yes, that is what is being said. <laughs> God is bigger God is bigger than than you and me. He's bigger than our minds, and he's bigger than the creatures that proximately inform our minds and are his effects. And that's all that that's saying. Yeah. Great. Any final? Earlier on, Joe was remarking upon the way in which, um, reading the book of Genesis, we see um, processes of naming God in characters like Hagar, or the way that Abraham talks with other people of the land, or going into Exodus, of course, the the great revelation of God's name in um, chapter three and four. And it, it seems to me that there's 
a development in the naming of God over the course of the canon. And there comes, I mean, if you read the Pauline epistle, epistles, there's a sophistication of theological grammar that really is absent from um, earlier texts to that same degree of elaboration. There's a sort of um, understanding of the inseparable um, inseparable um, operations. You can think about the way that different things are appropriated to persons of the Trinity. And even when we get to the very different sort of vocabulary that we find in places like Revelation, there's a sophistication to the visionary language that is not straightforwardly the way some people have seen as three um, distinct agents in communication with each other. You have uh, the shifting of imagery. You have imagery of the throne, the lamb in the midst of the throne, or the water that proceeds from the throne. These are sophisticated theological images. And it seems to me that there is that development of theological language over the course of the canon. Um, and I'd be curious, just in conclusion, to hear some of your thoughts on how that internal process of theological purification of language relates to the sort of discipline that we're engaged in. And also how the particular emphasis in the revelation of God in Christ as the culmination of that mm -hmm. factors into scholastic theology and its methods. Yeah, that's a very difficult question. Um, you know, Holy Scripture is not merely the unpacking of prior metaphors now in proper locution, right? It's the continued reflection uh, by by the ancient sages, moved by the Holy Spirit, um, to speak of God in ways that are taking up new creaturely predicates, that are devising new images, uh, riffing on the old images, of course, as well. But insofar as there is that kind of development, it's it's going to be development along two lines. One is um, the apprehension or the usage of new predicates, um, which corresponds to a deeper penetration of creaturely reality. So you you, you see like this kind of development the more anthropomorphic religions describing God as having a body. And then later religions are like no body. <laughs> and like, you thought it was a body before and like a spiritual body, but there's no, there's no, it's just spirit. Now um, that corresponds to a deeper perception of the created order, a better, a better metaphysics, a better creaturely metaphysics of what, what the created universe is like. And therefore a better ability to know God from that in a clearer fashion. So that's one that I would advert to. And that's often correspondent to a lot of the differences between New Testament versus Old Testament writings. You see, a, in my opinion, a lot of the Old Testament writings are not so much like in the development throughout the, the Old Testament uh, books. It's not so much a difference of metaphysics or philosophy it's more the reduction of metaphors to proper locution is how i would like gesture is it's more like there's a really really hard break between the testaments there's a very strong uh greek philosophical injection that happens in the 
Judeo and then ultimately Christian uh, religion that the New Testament is taking advantage of and the Old Testament not as if it were a collection of, you know, dumb nomads who didn't know better. No, they were sages who knew creaturely reality and also knew God and were speaking about God under supernatural light uh, from creatures and, 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 and telling about that. They also had God filling their minds with images. Uh, and, and those are also very different, different things. But it seems to me that there's a strong difference between the testaments that is primarily philosophical. And so you have Philo, uh, who is exceedingly important for the early church fathers like Origen, and who's reading and rereading the Old Testament in ways that are Greek philosophy influenced. Am I allowed to say this? Um, I think it's pretty uncontroversial. It's just whether you like it or not, whether you think it's true and right and, and the natural terminus of formalization, as, as Joe has put it. So that's one, one set. And then the second set I would see is the reduction of metaphor to proper locution. So throughout the Old Testament, there is the vast majority, if not the entirety of Old Testament revelation of God is purely metaphorical. You've got guys like Maimonides, who's 13th century, and he is arguing philosophically that the entirety of Old Testament, of course, for him, Jewish scriptures, uh, is purely metaphorical. Uh, there are no proper locutions of God in Old Testament, period. Um, that's a fairly radical and strong view. I think it's probably getting verging towards the correct type of thing. But uh, at the least, there the vast majority is metaphorical. Well, there's the gradual unpacking of those metaphors, and there's the different usages of metaphors for putting a metaphor for something else. So I like to say that in Old Testament, wrath of God, it means everything from Satan to cosmic justice. And it does. And so there's a lot of the development internal to the canon which is using old metaphors for, for new things and or the gradual interpretation of metaphor for more and more proper locution. So when we're starting to go in the cosmic justice, justice situation, it wasn't like Satan is no longer in the picture or Satan is no longer the wrath of God. No, Satan was the wrath of God the whole time. But what does that mean? What does that amount to? Well, it means that he was the instrument of God's justice various things like this it, it's not it's not hard like it sounds very scary I'm like satan is the wrath of god oh my goodness no it means that god uh executed justice by way of both good and evil angels and he did so by way of both good and evil angels in different fashions because good angels as augustine says are using the natural law which is also the wrath of god yeah inscribed in their in their in their beings to punish uh unjust men and the sins of men so they're raining fire and brimstone down on sodom and gomorrah these sorts of things and then the evil the evil angels like satan himself are doing so from rage and malice and so god is also instrumentally causing that and therefore these are the the hands of god upon the earth like this is very jewish as well like i you know this is this is the way this is the way the old testament was read well, as it goes forward, those metaphors are put for different things 
and their meanings are more and more said properly. And that accounts for a massive amount of change. And it also requires you to be able to englobe that entire, like it, you have to be able to say, God is angry means everything from Satan to cosmic justice and do so intelligibly and philosophically and theolo theologically. Scholasticism enables you to do that and do everything in between those two poles and allows the metaphor to be meaningfully, to be meaningful, but also to be true as a prior of all those different things. And then go back through and research the actual phenomena of the text of Holy Scripture, which is quite crazy. And you see like, oh, okay, I see how wrath of God here is a metaphor for X and over here it's a metaphor for Y and all sorts of things uh, in between. And it just makes the, the, the logic of the text come to life when you have those interpretive resources, which is what scholasticism is trying to determine as far as what's universally possible to be true. And therefore we can re revert to Holy Scripture and, and see what's actually being said. We know it's true actually being said by the text of Holy Scripture with having those universal possibilities in mind. Yeah. Um, uh, the actual last thing I'll say, I think one thing that's really fascinating there is that you see um, not just in the metaphysical order or in the, the description of God, this movement to formalization, but you can see a similar process in the moral order. And Alistair and I, I think we're talking about this a couple of months ago that, um, you know, Jesus can be asked, what's the greatest commandment? Well, there's a million commandments to choose from. And in some sense, especially the love your neighbor commandment is kind of buried. It's buried in a pile, just as the names of God are. They're all kind of buried in a pile. But mm -hmm. love your neighbor is going to be picked out of the pile and be the one to which everything else is referred. And then Jesus brilliantly mm -hmm. is able to say, everything is summed up under this notion of love. And oddly being itself might be summed up under the notion of love when you, you know, when you go down the, uh, you know, when you go down the rabbit hole, but, uh, but yeah, there's that, that, that process of distal. Yeah. That process of pulling out something that's already on the ground in a sense, like you're saying, God is love way back then as well. And, and the equal weights, the, in some sense, what the process is doing is identifying over time, which of those are the, the names, whether moral or metaphysical in light of which we read all the others. Mm -hmm. and that's another, I think another way of capturing the process. That's really interesting, but yeah. well, Ryan and Alistair, thank you so much for being here today. Um, Ryan, it's really, uh, I'm really excited about this, uh, this material that's being out there. Um, once again, please do look up, uh, um, uh, I want to make sure I get the title here, God is an Introduction to Theology Proper, being released from the Davenant Institute. You'll be able to see it uh, on our website. It's going to be blasted all over Twitter. I know that I'll, I'll, I'll retweet this episode and, and uh, other, other opportunities for this to come out. But um this is really, um, it's a pretty affordable course. It's 20 really, really, really dense hours in the sense that they're, they're, they go down. Ryan can lecture very well, um, but they will reward re-listening. Re uh, uh, they really will reward going through several times. And so you're getting far, far, far more than your money's worth, I think, for getting these lectures. And so I just highly recommend that those, especially who are trying to, Think through the doctrine of God within especially kind of Protestant debates about doctrine of God. It's really helpful to kind of unhook for a second from the controversies 
and then and then re-go back into the grammar itself, the basic moves themselves and reorient yourself and then come back to all those disputes. Because I think a lot of the disputes going on, if you could go through the, the purging bath, as it were, <laughs> of getting these some of these things right and more uh, put in a better way, you can go back to all these debates about divine simplicity and the Trinity and all these things. Uh, and I think you'll be on a much firmer footing to make wise judgments, even pastoral judgments about how some of this stuff all, all plays out. Well, um, uh, Thanks everybody for listening. Uh, normally Dale uh, uh, sends us out, uh, but uh, uh, something something podcast catchers were available on all the things. I think he says something like that. But uh, I'll just say thanks uh, thanks for listening, and we'll look forward to seeing you next time.